Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your nihilistic New Yearer and A People's Theology host, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Brian McLaren. Brian is a speaker, author, activist, and networker exploring the intersection of Christian faith and contemporary life. He has written over a dozen books, including most recently, The Galapagos Islands, A Spiritual Journey. Also musically featured throughout this episode is James Anaya. James is a blues singer-songwriter from Seattle. You can get connected with both Brian and James and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of a people's theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today I have Brian McLaren with me, and Brian does lots of different things, uh, including writing and speaking. You're an activist uh, and uh, clearly a sojourner to the Galapagos Islands now, and uh, you're also one of my favorite human beings in the world. Um, you've sort of, in this uh, very unofficial capacity, have kind of been this this uh, lifelong mentor, if you will, to me, so I, I just always aspire towards the work that you do. Um, I aspire to be the person that you are in the world. And um, I just absolutely love the work that you do in the world. And so well, anyway, I'm pleased to be able to talk with you again um, on this podcast. Well, I'm happy to be with you again. Thanks for those kind words. And now I, I feel a lot of pressure. I've got a lot to live up to. <laughs> you but, certainly do. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, you always, uh, you always meet expectations, if not exceed them. But So my very first question uh, that I ask lots of people, and I'm, in fact, I'm sure when I first interviewed you, you uh, got this question, but maybe things have changed since then. Uh, but who is Brian McLaren to Brian McLaren? <laughs> Well, I, I suppose to me, I'm a, a husband and a father and a person who loves the outdoors. Those mm. would be, if I boil it down to three things, and a, and a grandfather. I have uh, my wife and I have four kids and five grandkids, and I'm going to be leaving in a couple of days to spend a week with some of them. So that'll be a lot of fun. Oh, I'm, I'm sure they keep you on your toes and keep you busy. It's just so great. It's just so great. And, you know, uh, when I really think my kids, like I did my very best as a dad, like I, it was the most important thing to me, but I think my kids are better parents than I was. So <laughs> I, I admire that them a lot. Well, that might tell you a little bit about the, the good work that you did. <laughs> I, a friend of mine said, if you really love your kids, you do your very best, you raise them. And then you say, I'm really sorry, you deserve so much better. <laughs> and that's how I feel. So as I mentioned at the beginning, you are a writer, and uh, you just recently wrote a book called The Galapagos Islands, A Spiritual Journey. Uh, and this is not your first book in the least at all. Uh, I'm sure you've learned a lot about yourself uh, in the process of writing all the books that you have. But what about yourself did you learn particularly in writing this book? Wow. Well, you know, I, I'll tell you what this book gave me a chance to do. Uh, Mason, it gave me a chance to be, maybe I could say it this way, a writer first and a thinker second. Mm. Um, I don't mean to say I wrote without thinking, but <laughs> but uh, but I think a lot of times people read my books and I'm asked to write books because there are thoughts that I want to get to. Um, but in, in writing this book, I felt like I just got to be a writer and I mm. got to write as a human being. And so in in that way, this book feels like a book that kind of just gave me a chance to be myself. And, and one of the truest things about me is that my, my first language really is, is nature. And mm. uh, so this gave me a chance to, to p try to put into words things that go way beyond words. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, you know, I, I suppose it tells me that I have this love for adventure, you know, <laughs> uh, 
which which is really true. I'm I'm not like a risky, thrill-seeking person who, you know, and that's but I look at my life and I've had a lot of adventures. So maybe that's something I see about myself mm, now. Mm-hmm. What was something that you maybe learned factually in writing this book? Maybe something historically or theologically, oh. maybe even scientifically? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I, I'll tell you one of my favorite chapters in the book to write. I, I actually wrote two chapters largely about Charles Darwin. Mm-hmm. And I had never read The Origin of the Species. So I read Origin of the Species uh, before, and I guess I may have finished it on the trip itself. Um, and Origin of the Species is, I, I didn't realize what a well-written book it is. Mm. And I uh, factually, uh, this is both subjective and you know, uh, involving fact, but I, I felt what a likable and decent human being Charles Darwin was. Mm. Uh, I learned a lot about him. I learned about his great sadness. He was, a, he, especially in his later years, anyone who met him felt he was sad. Most of the photographs you look at him, you see the sort of sadness in his eyes. Mm. At the same time, such a generous person and sincere and eager to get to the truth and tell the truth. Uh, so those things really, uh, you know, just the facts of his life uh, were were extremely interesting to me. I'll tell you one little fact that was super interesting to me. I, I might forget the exact number, but I think it was about 20 miles away from Charles Darwin's home as he's doing the research for Origin of the Species. Uh, two fellows are doing their own research and conversation and writing a very important book, uh, Karl Marx and uh, and angles mm. uh, and uh they were writing the communist manifesto during the same time darwin was writing his research kind of interesting interesting uh i, I wonder if there's some serendipity universal serendipity going on at the with that well you know i i've thought about this a good bit since then and one of the things that happens with galileo really um and, and copernicus and galileo a couple hundred years earlier is that we start to realize things are in motion. Mm. And in between Copernicus and Galileo, some of the early great geologists started developing theories, uniformitarianism and other theories like this about that, that come from reflecting on layers of sediment. So people just started paying attention to the earth and, and their observations. And so they started having this idea, oh, the earth hasn't always been in this form or this shape. It's, it's very different. They're studying fossils mm. and sediment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so all of these are interconnected in a way. Um, Adam Smith, uh, before Darwin, had written The Wealth of Nations, which suggested that nations can become more and less prosperous. So kind of what's happening is people are moving from a more neoplatonic world where your assumption is stasis and less mm-hmm. an object at rest tends to stay at rest. Uh, unless it's interfered with to say, no, actually everything is interfering yeah. with everything. Everything's in motion. Yeah. And so there is definitely synergy. In fact, when Darwin, uh, when Marx died, uh, uh, Engels uh, said something to the effect uh, that, uh, 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 that, that Darwin's theory had validated, had added biological justification for their economic mm, theory, that things evolve, that things change. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. One of the things I noticed about this book is it reads a little bit more like a diary than many of your past books. What challenges were there to writing this way and what benefits did you glean from writing in this way versus maybe some of those other past books? So it's very different when you're having an experience and trying to tell a story. Uh, in many ways, it's simpler. It's maybe you'd even say pure in the sense it's very spontaneous. Obviously there's craft. I write very quickly. I would, I, every day I'd be um, writing down notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd go scoot, I'd go snorkeling, come back. And I was, had my mind just full of images and experiences and feelings. And I would, you know, run down to my room and either grab my computer or grab a little journal that I bought and just start writing notes because I, I didn't want to lose anything. So there was that sort of feeling of, just spontaneity and freshness and almost a direct stream from your experience to your memory to words. Um, you know, when, when I'm, I'm writing a book right now called Faith After Doubt, mm. and uh, I'm, I'm having to develop a, a kind of, not an argument like I'm fighting with somebody, but a, a logical progression. Uh, and I always try to put, whenever I, 
I'm a good enough writer. I put a narrative arc even in my nonfiction work. Mm -hmm. um, but letting the narrative arc predominate was was very pleasant and natural uh, in, in the first eight chapters of the book. And then the last five chapters, if I'm counting correctly, um, uh, were kind of reflections that happened after the mm. the uh, trip. And although they weren't sequential, they also, you know, I find myself thinking about Charles Darwin again and thinking about this photograph of him and his sad, sad mm. eyes. Mm -hmm. And then that was, I think, I think that's going to be the next chapter I write, you know. Another observation I made about this book versus many of your other previous books is that you shared visually with, uh, with the reader. Uh, as a writer, you normally are probably comfortable sharing and documenting through word, uh, but how did sharing and documenting through photographs change your perspective as a writer, if it did oh, at all? Well, I've got to tell you, I, I took all those pictures as much as anything for my own memory, obviously, <laughs> to enjoy. And I don't even know if I dared to hope that they would publish any of them mm. in the book. But I was so happy when the publishers said that they would like to include some of the photographs in the book. So that mm. made me happy just because, you know, when you're a writer, you hope to convey something in words. And and I'm certainly an amateur photographer. I have great appreciation for photography, yeah. photography and all the all the visual arts. But you're also trying to capture something there. So that that felt really good. What was something that catalyzed your love for nature and the outdoors and ecological justice? Uh, well, for my love for nature and the outdoors, there's no question. I, I mean, I don't know to what degree we're born with, you know, just like a vacuum for certain kinds of experiences. But I was born way out in the country in upstate New York. My dad was a doctor, but his job then was as a public health commissioner. And it was a rural, rural area. So public health meant hoof and mouth disease mm. and, and uh, rabies. And uh, so we lived way out in the country. Across the street was a barbed wire fence and a pasture with a bunch of cows. To one side of my yard was a creek that had fossils in it. Mm -hmm. uh, behind our house, there was a vacant lot. But past that, there was a pond and uh, frogs and salamanders and snakes everywhere and uh, and birds. And so from my youngest life, I was just intrigued with wildlife and uh, all living things. Uh, and through the years, that's only deepened and intensified. So, um, and of course, when you love something and then you see it being destroyed, you, um, you want to save it and protect mm. it. When I was a boy uh, and our family moved to Maryland, uh, we lived in this housing development. And I remember uh, if I went up to the end of my street, took a right, there was a dead end. And beyond that was a huge forest. And I remember finding a wood thrush nest with beautiful little wood thrush eggs in it. And I came back a few days later and there were little hatchlings. And uh, I remember uh, just ha so much fun running through those woods mm -hmm. and making forts with my friends and all the rest. Then came the bulldozers. It was all gone. Mm. And uh so I think, you know, from that age, I, I started having an ecological conscience. It really intensified our, we used to take our family vacations in the summer up to the Adirondack Mountains, and I always loved mm. fishing. And uh, when I was a boy is when they, they put up these tall smokestacks in the Ohio Valley, uh, you know, in the industrial mm -hmm. uh, states of Ohio and Indiana and Michigan. and. Uh, and nobody realized that when they put up those high smokestacks, um, that it would create acid rain. And so I remember the lakes that I fished in these beautiful crystal clear lakes where you'd catch a lot of fish and you come back two summers later, there's not a single fish in the lake mm. because the, the lakes have been acidified. 
Now, eventually they tried to do something about that. And, you know, I, I remember they closed, there was a trout hatchery and they closed down the trout hatchery because as soon as the trout left the spring fed streams where they were hatched, they would die because of um, acidified lakes. So that was another early experience that helped me realize we human beings, uh, we, we can do a lot of damage uh, mm. really, really fast. Mm -hmm. In addition to the Galapagos Islands being known for their biodiversity and importance in the study of climate change, they're also known in some Christian circles as a place where Darwin began his journey to, uh, in their mind, undermine the conception of uh, their conception of the Christian faith. Uh, what are some of the reflections that you made on your journey to the Galapagos as a Christian in the midst of some of the versions of Christianity's history with those islands? Um. This stream of fundamentalism that thinks that the only way to take the Bible seriously is to take everything literally. Mm. Um, I think that's such a harmful narrative. It's been abused in so many ways. I mean, you know, a lot of people know that, for example, John Calvin mocked Copernicus um, and he mocked him in just sort of bitter terms. So did Martin Luther. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and here we think they're such geniuses in their biblical interpretation, but they weren't smart enough to give one of the smartest men of their time uh, the respect he deserved. Uh, and that, that, you know, just cascades. The Catholic Church, uh, you know, officially forbade the publishing of Galileo's mm -hmm. uh, book. Uh, and uh, a, a, a Italian uh, priest and scholar named Bruno was executed for for daring to tell the truth that the uh, that the earth that the sun doesn't go around the earth, so there'd been this long history of religious people being afraid of science because of I think a a, a very uh, unfortunate way of interpreting the Bible, and of course that continues today um, with uh, people using the Bible to deny climate change. I mean, to me, pathetic and dangerous action on their part using the Bible to continue to stigmatize um, gay people, mm -hmm. uh, uh, to continue to suppress the freedom and equality of women. So uh, there's an awful lot of history to that. And, you know, uh, of course, Darwin didn't spend all that long in the Galapagos Islands, and mm -hmm. he didn't figure out the theory of evolution on the Galapagos Islands. Uh, some weeks after he was on a, a voyage circumnavigating the globe. So after he left the Galapagos Islands, he's heading uh, west across the uh, uh, the Pacific Ocean, and he writes in his journal, "If there's any validity to this idea of uh, of uh, change among species, because he wasn't the first person to think of that, right? Um, uh, but he he was the first person to rigorously test it and and propose it as a sensible integrated theory." But he said, if there's any validity to it, I think what I just saw in the Galapagos Islands will give me reason mm. to, you know, to, to understand it. So, uh, yeah, you, you, you think about the harm done in the name of religion. Uh, and it's not just on this sort of obvious anti-science bias. You know, I think one of the things that's been so harmful over the last 500 years is that along with white supremacy came an idea and, and Christian supremacy. Um, came an idea of human supremacy. And that mm -hmm. was developed from the first chapter of Genesis, where, uh, where in, in the text, God uh, says, uh, I give you dominion mm -hmm. over mm -hmm. the fish of the seabirds of the air. People interpreted that to say, uh, I give you destruction. I give you a, 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 a kind of genocide card. I, I give you permission to exploit and destroy. Um, I, I think a much more sensible interpretation of that word dominion is to say this. God creates human beings in God's image. God is imaged as a king. Any king whose land is plundered of life, any king whose land gets worse every year is a really crappy king. <laughs> yeah. So for human beings to use that kind of logic, and of course, then they fold it in. Uh, eschatology, as if to say, oh, God's going to destroy the world anyway. We might mm -hmm. as well return it empty, you know? Oh, it's horrible. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And and I'm, I'm sad to say 
you know, people like Rick Perry, who, uh, you know, works, uh, I guess he's, I don't know if his resignation has happened yet. Uh, and who knows, he may end up being indicted for something. But uh, people like Rick Perry uh, still use the Bible to justify the exploitation of the earth. So mm-hmm. terrible, terrible, terrible. I'm curious about um, sort of converging the last two questions together then um, of your your uh, love for nature and your history and your childhood um, immersed in nature with this last question. Um, what, what Knowing that you grew up in the Brethren tradition, uh, which for the most part is a very conservative uh, tradition, what was your relationship gr- growing up um, when you thought about as a maybe as a young child uh, theologically about the nature in which you were immersed. Um, wh- was there any sense that evolution uh, was something that was accepted um, and how you looked at uh, the nature that you you loved and cared for? Um, and yeah, how, how did you relate yeah, to that yeah. nature theologically as a child? Uh, it's a, a, a fun for me to think about that, uh, Mason. One of my earliest memories is sitting on the couch with my dad and he had bought me a book about wildlife. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember uh, those pages. I can s- picture the picture of the raccoon on one page, and uh, you know, I and I just loved that book. And he'd read it to me again and again. Um, and so my parents really fed my love uh, for nature. I, I may have mentioned this little stream beside our house had fossils in it, and I remember mm-hmm. them explaining to me what fossils were. Um, but if you'd asked my dad if he believed in evolution, he would have said no. Right. Um, and, and then he would have had to do some kind of fancy footwork. Well, when we moved from the country first to a little town, um, that town in that town, our house was about six houses from the library. So um, my mother, I remember, would walk my brother and me to the library, and we just had a constant flow of books. And uh, from that town to where we live next, I read every book in the library for in the children's section about animals and plants mm-hmm. and trees. Then I read all the books in like the, you know, for uh, middle school and high schoolers. And by the time I was in sixth or seventh grade, I was checking out college textbooks about animals. You know, <laughs> I, I really was because my curiosity was just so great. I'd memorized the Latin genus and species names for huge numbers of animals and plants. So. Uh, just and it wasn't like nobody was telling me to. I just loved it. I was I couldn't learn enough about it. So by the time I was reading all these high school textbooks, evolution was obvious. It was like, of course. And uh, uh, and I remember I had a, a Sunday school teacher, uh, and I don't I don't remember if I asked the question or one of my fellow classmates did, but. Uh, uh, someone said to the teacher, what do you think about evolution? And I remember him saying something along the lines of, oh, you have to make a choice. You either believe in God or evolution. Mm. And then he moved on to the next thing. And I remember thinking, if that's true, I, I, I'm not long for this religion. <laughs> mm. Mm. Um, a little bit different of a question, but many of us have this sort of preoccupying anxiety um, and concern about the ways in which climate change is affecting, already affecting our world. How did this journey um, to the Galapagos maybe ease, fortify, or change that anxiety or concern that you have for climate change in the world? You know, uh, you have to imagine these islands that become the Galapagos Islands are at where there's a, a, a rift and some t- tectonic plates meeting. And as often as the case, we have tectonic plates meet, a volcano uh, mm-hmm. comes up. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and the plate that these volcanoes are embedded in keeps moving to the east. So 
um, over, I, I forget the number, it's in the book, but uh, something like six or seven million years, one by one, these volcanic islands have been emerging from the ocean and moving to the east. And the only way animals or plants could get to these islands is be, by being blown there by wind or carried there by sea currents. Hmm. And so they have been evolving, no human interference, no human interaction, um, you know, for let's say six million years. Human beings show up, and within decades, extinction is happening left and right mm. uh, in this totally unique uh, environment. And if there hadn't been major intervention in the 1950s, things would be so much worse. And by the 1960s and 70s, restoration began. And, and the Galapagos right now are one of the places in the world where things are better now than they were in the 1960s. A lot of places are way worse, but I think you could say that they're facing new challenges, new problems. But here's the thing, um, climate change will wipe away every bit of progress that's been made. Mm. Uh, and and uh, you know, we often talk about extinction events. Most people know, you know, our best theory now is that the dinosaurs were wiped out by an asteroid that came down and plunged into the Gulf of Mexico near the Yucatan Peninsula, created instantaneous climate change uh, uh, catastrophe that killed all the dinosaurs. Well, the thing we have to face is that we human beings are now the asteroid. Mm. And, uh, and, we, uh, and we have a very, very short time to turn things around. So on the hopeful side, the Galapagos Islands say, you can turn things around if you wake up and organize. Um, but, you know, uh, if, if we elect the same kind of, uh, scientific buffoons that we just elected, uh, in 2016, um, who are, are willing to put the profits of oil companies and their other big donors, uh, ahead of the well-being of the planet and the survival of future generations, um, you know, that, I mean, we, it's not like we, it's not like we have four years to waste. That's how tight our timelines mm, are. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I would hope anybody who would go to the Galapagos Islands would come home saying we can make things better, but we cannot be complacent. And, uh, every, every day matters for us to take the action that we mm, can. Mm -hmm. What did you learn about God and God, uh, how God interacts with creation from your journey to the Galapagos? So this is one of the things that Darwin did that I think we're just beginning now to cope with. If you take, you know, Copernicus and Galileo about the stars and you take Lyle and the other early geologists about, um, about geology, and then you take Darwin and others. And of course, Darwin didn't really know yet about genetics. So you'd have to add mm -hmm. uh, Mendel and others who, who made discoveries about how the genetic mechanisms, you put all this together. And then you add to that Einstein and Heisenberg, who have insights into how atoms uh, develop. And, and, and that leads to all of our understanding of the expanding universe, which leads us backward to our understanding of the Big Bang and, and cosmogenesis. One thing we know is this universe is in constant motion. It's in constant change. And Christians adopted some ideas that weren't really native to the Hebrew mind in the Hebrew scriptures, but in the centuries after Christ, Christians adopted ideas from Greek philosophy that made us think that God prefers stasis, that if God could have God's way, nothing would ever happen again, mm. <laughs> meaning everything would be in this perfect, this state of perfection, which is a static state, because if you're in perfection, if anything changes, it can only get worse, right? So it, it had this whole idea of a static God who worked like a dictator to keep everything under control. And uh, I think what Darwin challenges us to see is that whatever God is, that's not it. Mm -hmm. um, that God is, uh, that God is, if you could say, the force of change in the universe. God is the dynamic that calls the universe into being. Um, God calls the, God is the, is the lover of change. Mm. Um, uh, there's this, uh, uh, this wonderful uh, science fiction writer uh, who uh, has a character who says, God is change. Um, and mm. uh, 
Uh, I remember when I first read that, I thought it was a little bit shocking, but I, I realized, no, God is the dynamic force of the universe. And uh, one of the theologians who helped me with this was uh, uh, Wolfhard Pannenberg, 20th mm. century philosopher, who, who uh, in, in a sense, I'm grossly oversimplifying, um, but if you take his thought and the thought of uh, Jürgen Moltmann and others who've picked up their work, um, including the process theologians like John Cobb and mm-hmm. Philip Clayton and others, we could put God, instead of thinking of God as like the guy at the pool table who breaks the uh, the rack, right? Who, sh- who hits the first cue ball that goes and hits all the other mm-hmm. balls and gets things in motion. Everything is still. God sets up the table mm-hmm. and God gets it going from the back. What if we were to think of God out in the future calling a universe into being? So God is the voice from the future calling us forward. Mm. I, that's more the idea of God that I think makes sense when we take evolution seriously. And not mm. only that, God is present in each present moment, um, inviting us to move toward diversity and harmony and, uh, and uh, complexity and interdependence. Uh, that dynamic view of God is, mm-hmm. is what I think is out there for us. Uh, a whole lot of people are afraid of it, and so they double mm-hmm. down on the mm-hmm. old view. Uh, and that's, that's part of the dynamic of these times, I think. Today I have James Anaya, and James is not only a uh, Spaniard descendant, uh, but he also <laughs> is a uh, rock and roll and blues musician. Uh, and I just need to say, James, I really dig the sound. You really have that classic oh. blues rock and roll sound that is just absolutely perfect. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm really curious about, you know, in the sort of the age of like singer songwriters, what is it about kind of that grittiness about blues that you really are attracted to and want to write that particular kind of singer songwriter music versus something like an indie folk thing? Yeah. First of all, thanks for listening and appreciate the words. Um, I just, uh, yeah, I just really appreciate songwriters and particularly like songwriters recordings that just feel really raw where you can feel like you're in the room. Uh, you can hear every little, um, what some people would call flaws, but I call it like, mm-hmm. you know, more of a characteristic <laughs> That's um, and That's uh, good character. charm, if you will. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I loved all the late sixties, early seventies, or, you know, even earlier than that, um, like rock and roll soul music. Cause you can hear all kinds of things. Um, that one of my obsessions is actually just trying to figure out how they got those weird sounds through like those old amps, old mm-hmm. tube amps from, mm-hmm. you know, the fifties. And so, yeah, I kind of am obsessed with that sound. So you, you definitely hear it in my music. Yeah. Do you, I, I mean, I don't know extensively the history of blues music, uh, but what I do know is that a lot of it was created by, um, black artists you know especially you know sort of post jim crow era um and so a lot of them were kind of writing about their existence being you know in this sort of halfway between you know post-slavery but also pre-civil rights and so there's kind of that crying out for freedom um obviously you're not a black man but do you have this sort of within the the lyrical themes and within the music itself, do you have kind of this theme of like longing for maybe some like existential freedom or is there anything in that, uh, that sort of the, from the history of blues that really captures your imagination for why you get yourself involved with blues? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really, it comes down to my personality, I think. And, uh, you know, I'm more of a somber person. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I identify and I am 
uh, a little more, bit more moved by uh, people who sing sad songs mm-hmm. or songs about just real things, you know, like it's so it's pretty easy to like, you know, you write a happy song about love, but it's, it's hard to be so real in a song um, where you're talking about, you know, difficult times where you're mm-hmm. struggling. Mm-hmm. And it's something that all of us go through as humans. Um, we go through tough times, depression, anxiety, whatever it might be. Um, and so, yeah, but that type of song just really speaks to me um, in a real way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You uh, released earlier this year, uh, so almost even a year ago, a single. Uh, and then your last, it was sort of, I, I, maybe you identify it as an EP, was released in 2018. Um, mm-hmm. What what can we maybe expect as listeners in the future now? I mean, you're it's been a year or almost a year since that last single. Maybe is that a tease to maybe a full length album? Is it a tease to maybe an EP? What do you got coming down the the pipeline? Yeah, I got I got a a, quite a handful of of great songs that I, I've been working on in the chamber, and right now it's such an interesting time as a musician or as a recording artist mm-hmm. uh, in terms of like putting music out. It's not necess- It's not so necessary to put out a full-length record like it was back in the sixties and seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you can you can you can become successful by putting out singles, and people can get to know you that way. Um, so right now, I'm just kind of working on tracking singles and doing the best quality, getting things right, which with each song. Um, there's a studio that's here in Washington. One of my buddies, um, it's actually at his house. It's called Soundview Analog, but it's an all tape, all analog, like studio, um, nothing digital. So it's a bunch of old mics from like the forties and fifties. And so we really geek out with that stuff. So we're just kind of like finding the right mics for, like I kind of said, mm. um, obsessing over getting those right sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I'm focusing on right now for, for, uh, uh actually a single that I'm working on called oh it all to you it should be out like mid to late february next year so yeah yeah that's awesome do do you feel you know you talked a a little bit about the sort of new way of music um do you think that you know with the 60s and 70s because of the advent of an album where you could put out 10 to 20 songs on one release and there was sort of an art that came with that you know there were there things like concept albums emerged from that um and right. you know just the 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 concept of an album itself uh became an art for onto itself do you feel like with with the streaming era and with singles becoming a little bit more of a at least like financially a more uh sustainable outlook for how you how an artist releases their music do you think there is like a way to release singles that kind of captures the same sort of art that albums eventually that albums captured do do you think there's a way to do it doing that versus you know just putting out a bunch of single songs that maybe are disconnected but do you think there's a way to do that uh, as an artist from an artist perspective? Um, yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's all keeping, I think I understand your question. I, I think it's uh, possible to engage your artist or your, um, your fans or your listeners the way with a single, uh, the way maybe a full length record uh, had, you know, would have done. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it might just take a little longer. Um, you know, cause so basically what I'm trying to do is try to put out a collection of songs and just say in the next year or two, I have a, a total of 10, 15 songs. Then I'd put out an actual vinyl with mm. those, which I would just call the essentials of the last couple of years, yeah. um, which would all, you know, fit a certain sound or vibe. Um, and, uh, I don't know. It's, it's all kind of unfolding the industry 2.0 <laughs> as they call it. Yeah. Um, it's it's and nobody really knows what or how to do it unless they have massive budgets you know you're on a label and you can get in the studio for six months and write and record mm-hmm. a full-length record as an independent artist it just makes more sense um but it's also you know you can still engage your audience with social media videos mm-hmm. stuff like that it's it's a lot more work 
these days. Totally. You know, I'll say that. <laughs> totally. Uh, speaking of that new work, uh, you talked about some of these new, uh, some of the new music that you're releasing. Are there any kind of themes that you're noticing that are emerging uh, lyrically? Uh, are there particular themes that you're trying to highlight lyrically? Um, yeah. Do you have more to say about that? Yeah. Uh, in terms of lyrics, um, I, I think right now I'm trying to focus on writing more uplifting, upbeat songs. Um, and uh, so right now I'm, the song ODL to you is kind of a poem that I wrote um, about my fiance and I, and just kind of our relationship. Hmm. Um, and so I'm just trying to, you know, a song that, you know, is, is still deep. It's not surface level. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, you know, you could, you can still, it resonates with you in a, an artistic way. Mm-hmm. You talked about how lyrically there's kind of an upbeatness to some of the new music. Do you feel like there's continuity with the kind of music you're, you're recording and, and writing with that, that's accompanying that upbeat lyrics or those upbeat lyrics? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, Let's see here. So, I'm sorry. Can you re- rephrase that question for yeah, me? Yeah. Do Do you feel like um, to accompany some of those upbeat lyrics? Do you feel like the music that you're also writing that's accompanying those lyrics? Do you feel like some of that's yeah. even more upbeat as well? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I got um. Uh, I got these background singers that are amazing from up here in the Northwest, um, and you know, just having that and um the tempo of the song is a little more upbeat. We're playing, you know, it's a six, eight song. So it's, it's a little bit more on the mellow side. I'd say it's got a vibe. That's a Joe Cocker, you know, the Joe Cocker cover, um, a little help from my friends, the cover Mm. you did of the Beatles. Mm -hmm. Um, it's got that vibe, uh, as far as, um, just production goes. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's got, as far as a love song goes, it kind of has that cover that Chris Stapleton did the Tennessee whiskey song. Okay. Um, Yep it's kind of a mix between those two songs as far in terms of vibe. So it's, mm-hmm. it's still like a somber acoustic song, but it's, it's, you know, it's beautiful is what I would say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there any aspiration to tour or do some shows on some of this new music, uh, in the next yeah. coming months? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that kind of come, comes in line with just, uh, rethinking the business model of, of being a, a musician. It's, um, building a fan base online so you know putting out records and or putting out singles and putting out videos and building a fan base online so that way when you go out and you play a show you know people know about you and they're excited Mm -hmm. about you and so that's kind of what i'm doing right now the next show is i'm actually playing a show tonight it's just kind of uh to keep my um you know just to try out some new songs and whatnot Mm -hmm. something huge as a solo gig but as far as new uh shows coming in the future I'm working with a new manager right now, so that's kind of all unfolding here in the next uh, month within the new year. So that's great, great. Uh, I I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your music. I have really appreciated it. I I'm a big fan of it. I just love the grittiness uh, of blues, and I think you just mm-hmm. nail it out of the park. It's there. There's often times where I run into artists uh, on this podcast where I'm just absolutely flabbergasted that they aren't signed or they aren't bigger than they are because they're just absolutely fantastic and you certainly are one of those artists oh thanks man it means a lot i appreciate it yeah thank you so much for sharing your music yeah thanks for listening I'm sure this journey was so great and transformative that not all of it could have been shared in the pages of your book. Uh, but what, So what was something uh, that you found 
really transformative on this journey that didn't maybe quite quite make the book? Well, you know, I, I intentionally decided not to write about the people mm. um, because, I uh, because I, I didn't want, I, I mean, they, I didn't want to violate their privacy, first of all. Um, and second, I think I, I didn't know when I started how much time I would even have to interact with the people. Like one way this trip could have gone is that I could have, uh, you know, gone, have an experience, come back, lock myself in my room and just write all the time. So, but I made the decision. I didn't want to, I wanted to write the absolute minimum about the people. Um, but people are an amazingly wonderful part of God's creation. And so the interactions among the people were, were delightful and wonderful and remarkable. And, you know, to be thrown onto a boat with 15 other uh, uh, passengers, uh, along with a, a really interesting crew. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And that's a once that's a, and, and to think a group of people come together for once in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did mention this in the book, but the, our eight days were over. We'd taken this little inflatable dinghy back to the, to the, uh, dock and we were going to get on a bus and go to the airport and go home. And there was a woman about my age, maybe a few years older. Um, and we had hardly, we hadn't, it wasn't like we avoided each other. We just never talked that much and sitting, waiting for the bus. We talked and, you know, I'm in my sixties. I'm going to guess she was probably in her late sixties. And, um, and, you know, we just had this very tender talk, like, wow, we just spent these eight days on the same boat sharing these experiences. And when we say goodbye, we'll never see each other again in all mm. likelihood. You know, um, I don't even remember her name. Right. So uh, uh, but to think your life intersects with some people and you make an effect on each other. And uh, that was a yeah, that was a moment I won't I won't forget. Mm hmm. How do you see this book being inspiring and liberating theological work? Well, uh, that actually could be a good tagline for this book because that's really <laughs> what I hope it was. In fact, the UK version, it, they gave it a different title. It's called Theology in the Wild. Mm. And um, I and like that so, a little bit better, actually. Yeah, it's, it's a good title. And uh, you might remember in the introduction, I have this whole thing about indoor theology versus outdoor theology, <laughs> domesticated theology versus wild theology. And uh, so I think that whatever theology is going to be in the coming centuries, um, it's going to take the natural world as its first scripture. Mm. It's going to understand that how however God expresses God's self, uh, long before there are any human beings speaking any language, um, was this amazing unfolding creation. And it truly is the speech of God. It, tr- it, it truly is a, the revelation of the divine. <laughs> if people need a Bible verse to back that up, Romans 1 says exactly that. Mm. From this creation, we can see what is necessary to know about God. So we'll take that a lot more seriously. And Mm. I I hope uh, if this book could play some small part in encouraging people in that direction, I'll feel very happy. And even if it doesn't, a person who has no theological interest, I would hope, could read this book and think and just feel like when they walk out their front door the next day to realize, wow, where I live is pretty special. Where I live is pretty amazing. Mm. What can I start noticing uh, right where I live? Mm. I like that. How can listeners get connected with you and your work, Brian? Um, well, my website's brianmclaren.net, B-R-I-A-N-M-C-L-A-R-E-N.net. And if they go there, I have a blog and then I have, you know, my books are listed there and then links to follow me on Twitter and Facebook, Instagram, so on. Perfect. Thank you so much, Brian. Uh, I just love every work that you, you've ever made. Every book you've written, every word you've written is just uh, inspiring and liberating <clears throat> theological work for me. Um, you, you certainly are a hold a special place in my, in my heart and in my life. And, uh, oh, I, man. I thank you so much for, for who you are and, uh, who you will become even in the future years. Well, I feel the same about you. I'm excited and, and, and so grateful for you. You know, podcasts like yours are, uh, are helping turn the tide. And so keep up the great work. Perfect. Thank you so much, Brian.
you'd like to connect with both Brian and James and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. But so Oh,